Hi, and welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. At our last Science in the Seven Deadly Sins event, titled Sloth, Is Your City Making You Fat? Moderator Tom Vanderbilt asked a panel of experts to grade New York City on its walkability. The consensus amongst the panelists was that New York is basically pretty great. There's definitely room for improvement, however. Hunter Reed, co-founder of the organization Fast NYC, cautioned that policy will have to be forward-thinking in terms of technology to ensure that we remain at an A. Kate Benfield, an urban planner and sustainable communities advocate, pointed out that a more open and mutually understanding dialogue between drivers, pedestrians, and bikers would lead to improvements for everyone. And Dr. Mariella Alfonso, a research fellow and adjunct professor at NYU Poly, as well as the founder of State of Place and the president of Urban Imprint, brought up the disparity across various boroughs and neighborhoods. While that might be obvious to any New Yorker who gets outside of Manhattan, Dr. Alfonso is especially qualified to comment, and she can back up her impressions with statistics. Dr. Alfonso has developed a metrics instrument to objectively assess aspects of a place. I thought this was fascinating because during the Q&A session of the Sloth event, there was a ton of disagreement amongst the audience members over the deceptively straightforward sounding question, how walkable is New York? State of Place is a rating and diagnostic tool to help neighborhoods assess the strengths and weaknesses of their built environments in terms of a triple bottom line comprised of profit, environmental health, and people's quality of life. I wanted to find out more about how something experienced so differently at the subjective level could be translated into objective data to be used in evidence-based decisions. So without further ado, here's Dr. Alfonso. Thanks for being with us. Hi. To start off, could you tell us more about State of Place? What exactly does the tool do? Essentially, what it is now is this diagnostic a tool to measure walkability, and it's also a rating a rating tool for neighborhoods. And what neighborhoods get are diagnosis, if you will, of what's working and what's not along ten different urban design dimensions. So the way that I created the this the algorithm was, you know, I went through what we already knew from the literature at this point, been you know ten over ten years of studies that have been published to try to pinpoint those specific aspects of urban design or urban design principles that we knew empirically were related to physical activity and walking. So these were 10, I came up with 10 different urban design dimensions or that's density, proximity. So it's again, proximity to different destinations, form, which is essentially how buildings meet the street, parks and public spaces, the traffic safety, the um, personal safety, physical activity facilities, um, and then pedestrian and bicycle amenities, aesthetics overall, and um, and connectivity. So that so that grid of streets aspect. So um, what the <laughs> what a neighborhood gets is okay. How are you performing along these ten different dimensions? Right. So you might have. Uh, out of a at a scale of a hundred percent performance, where a hundred percent is you know the best, you might score you know twenty five percent on form, and fifty um, percent on parks. So you start to get a sense of like, well, what what does this neighborhood really need? Where where is where are its current assets? Where is it excelling? And where does it need to actually improve? And that starts to influence how you make funding decisions in light of limited 
sort of fiscal um, constraints that most municipalities have. Um, and I, I mentioned, of course, the economic tie-ins. You have an extra layer of information to make these more informed decisions about funding and interventions and otherwise, because each of those 10 different dimensions matters differently to the bottom line. So in other words, um, and this is where the triple bottom line aspect of it comes in, you know, while, you know, maybe you're performing very well on parks, so you're performing, you know, 50% relative to form where you're performing 25%, form actually has a higher predicted return on investment than does um, than parks. And so by return on investment right now, what state of place is measuring are things that are like office rents, uh, retail rents, retail revenues, and the for sale uh, housing on a square foot basis, as well as residential rents um, per on a per unit basis. So we know that for every level increase in state of place you go up overall, you get an increase in all of these different um, economic indicators. And so because of that, you can start to calibrate which one of these dimensions actually has a bigger impact on those price premiums than some of the others. So you combine your performance overall on these 10 different dimensions with the information on its estimated return on investment to come up with a really customized way to make decisions about your neighborhood and how to be the best it can be. Are people finding your evaluations convincing when it comes to making policy or funding decisions so far? Yeah, well, I'm currently working with my first uh, customer, which is the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments. And this is in the D.C. region, and they're using it to inform their strategic investment plan for the region. So it's exactly what I would have thought one of the uses would be for uh, for the state of place tool. So um, they definitely have bought in. They they realize that this is not something that currently exists. You know, there's no real objective empirical way to make decisions um, that are transparent and accountable because you can, not only do you get to make decisions about this now, you can go back and figure out how your particular interventions or policy decisions influence the overall state of place score, as well as the scores along these 10 different dimensions. So it's a way to continue to monitor progress and to evaluate the impact of different interventions and, and funding mechanisms that you do end up putting in place. How did you design the triple bottom line evaluation metrics? Yeah, well, actually, I've been working on um, metrics for walkability in particular for some time. I started as a grad student when I was at UC Irvine on a project to create an inventory to measure the built environment features that were at the time hypothesized to impact um, physical activity because there were really very few tools to objectively measure those specific features. And um, the Active Living Research Foundation, um, which had just started about around that time, was probably like 2000, 2001, they were... Um, they had been sponsored by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to start to look at these issues of how the built environment would, is impacting public health. But the first step was to actually create the metrics so that researchers could start to test hypotheses about that relationship. So that's how I start, started to get involved in, on the metric side of things. Um, and what came out of that project was the Irvine, Minnesota inventory. 
which is what feeds the um, state of place tool. So the IMI, which is the Irvine Minnesota Inventory, was essentially 162 different features of the built environment that we had tested for reliability. So we wanted to make sure that anybody who used the tool would come up with the same answers, um, you know, relating any, any particular block, whether it was an urban, suburban, or rural setting. So we had set up this, um, this tool for anybody to use, but it was particularly meant for researchers because it was, you know, well, how, how can we understand this relationship between the built environment and health, um, you know, better so that we can influence policy and practice, et cetera. So I used it quite a bit, actually. And it was really when I was working on two different projects, one for USC, in which they were using the IMI to evaluate smart growth and its, its health impacts. And uh, they, they wanted to try to understand how to use the, the IMI. And so I created um, essentially the scoring mechanism that is the precursor to, to state of place for that, uh, for that project um, or as, as a, result, a result of working on that project. And at the same time, I was also working on, on the Brookings project uh, on a report that came out last May called Walk This Way. I was, um, my co-author on that was uh, Chris Leinberger. And so we were trying to work on coming up with an operational definition of what he was calling a walkable urban place. And so we ended up using the IMI data, again, originally with no analysis plan. And because I had used or come up with this algorithm for my USC project, we used it for, for the Brookings project. Now, the Brookings project added an extra layer of analysis, um, which I had been wanting to do for some time, which factors into this triple bottom line idea. Um, because we, in the Brookings project, we looked at economic metrics of success of these walkable urban places. So this was an opportunity to show the value of urban design and place in a very systematic way, um, using this IMI data and the um, and areas within the DC metro region. And as I was working on that project, as I was writing that up, it really dawned upon me that this was more than just a way to rate or score the walkability of certain places, but it also worked as a diagnostic tool that would allow communities to not just know we're walkable or not walkable, but why? And what can we do uh, to actually increase walkability? And then because it was tied to the economic piece, they could start to really calibrate what made most sense in terms of how to use their investment dollars to maximize the bang for their buck. Could you tell us a little more about how you developed the standard of objectivity and reliability? Yeah. So for the original IMI uh, study, when we before we actually published as a, as a tool, we did two different tests of reliability. Uh, we did a test in in Irvine, which is where I was at UC Irvine, of um, myself and two other grad students. We collected data for, I believe it was about twenty five different neighborhoods in the Southern California region. Um, and we all collected data for the exact same segments or blocks, which is the unit of analysis for the IMI. What form exactly do these data points take, just to clarify? So you essentially collect this data on the ground on features such as whether there are sidewalks, um, whether there are street trees, the width of the street, uh, crosswalks, um, curb cuts, 
all sorts of different features uh, that we know now actually influence whether or not people decide to walk. So when we entered that data at the time, we used we used the paper version of the instrument, which just meant you, you went out there, it was almost like a tally of, of dif- these different features. You said, you know, yes, it's present, no, it's not present. And some of the questions were, uh, you know, is there some of this feature, a lot of this feature, or none of this feature? So we we entered that into um, essentially Excel and, and then processed it using SPSS, which is a statistical uh, software program. Um, but we so we had this data from Irvine, and the reason that Minnesota came to be in the name of the tool was because the University of Minnesota was working on a project at the time, they were also funded by the Active Living Research Foundation. They were the second round of of fundees. We were the first round, and they wanted to use the tool in their actual study. So they participated in the reliability study, and they had, oh gosh, it's been a while now. It must have been over 20 different students that were working on there, and I know that they got data for reliability of almost 1,000 different blocks in in Minneapolis. And, And so this is how we were able to test for reliability. Anything that didn't get above 70% in a rater reliability, in other words, that, you know, two different raters, if, if they agreed less than 70% of the time, um, then the, the then the actual question was stricken for, for the audit tool, except for two or three different occasions where we felt that by including a question, it would help answer another question or to help the, you know, increase the reliability of another question. Could you please give an example? Yeah, it was kind of like um, some of the more subjective items. So like uh, whether or not a a block was attractive or deemed to be attractive somehow helped people rate whether or not there were historic buildings on the block. So that kind of relationship between these two features where together they were reliable. How many people do you need to get a statistically robust inter-rater agreement? Gosh, I mean, technically speaking, you know, for statistical validity, you you only need an N of 30, but then you can't get into more nuanced understanding of how this relationship works, like differences between are there gender differences, are there age differences that influence people's decisions to walk and how the built environment influences that. Um, So typically we try to do like 200. At the event, there is a fair amount of discord over the walkability of New York, especially in Brooklyn. If there is an objective answer to the question of a place's walkability, why do people seem to experience the same place so differently? Hmm. That's a really great question. You know, I think that people value different aspects of the built environment um, from a walkability standpoint. There are some features that are much more basic or more important than some of the other features um, that that I started to observe. And so I came up with a framework that follows uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs to to explain why some things are more important than others. So the very first need is feasibility is the first need. So this has less to do with the environment itself and more about the person's sort of ability to um, have the time to walk or the actual physical ability to walk. So you you know that that woman that was talking about 
um, how she loves to drive and she never wants to have to, you know, walk the way that she was, you know, needed to do in, in Brooklyn growing up is kind of where it explains where she fell on this hierarchy. Like she felt in her understanding that it wasn't feasible for her to walk. So for her, it didn't matter any of the other features that were present in the built environment. She didn't, she didn't have that base order need, that very fundamental need of visibility for her to even go consider anything else in the hierarchy of walking needs. So she kind of fell off as a non-walker, right? Um, so you, you, you might have this with a person who um, has a disability. It might be difficult, a physical disability for them to, to navigate a city. But it could also be a you know, mom with a stroller. This, it, it's another kind of base level that's difficult to overcome for some people. Um, and then also just time, you know, the, the, they feel like time is a big factor. It takes, it, they perceive that it takes longer to walk than it does to use other modes. So that's the base level. Uh, then you start to get into the built environment um, aspects. So the next level would be accessibility. So, you know, is there something to walk on and is there something to walk to? So, you know, sidewalks um, and actual destinations. So are there things within my neighborhood that would, that are within walking distance? And that could be functional destinations like the grocery store, or, you know, different clothing stores, or it could be recreational destinations like a park. Um, so if you, there's some people that if it's just not accessible, like it's very difficult to kind of navigate, doesn't matter what comes after, if it's a really pretty environment, um, it's unlikely for them to walk. But there's some people that are highly motivated and may not even need a sidewalk. They might, if it's feasible, they're going to walk. They're going to figure out a way to walk. Um, then the next level is safety. So that becomes obviously really important. So there might be places to walk to, places and things to walk on. Uh, so the infrastructure is there, but it doesn't, person doesn't per perceive it to be safe. And there's a lot of different um, features of the built environment called physical instabilities that have been tied to people's perceptions of safety. So things like broken windows, graffiti, litter, dumpsters, um, big bushes, things like that. Um, and then also just people's perceptions of actual crime in, in a specific area. Uh, the next level has to do with comfort. So this has to do more so like, you know, is this place actually pedestrian oriented or is it more auto oriented? So yes, there's a sidewalk, but how wide is it? Is it buffered by cars? Is it buffered by, you know, street trees or landscape puffers? Um, you know, what's the crosswalk situation like? Traffic, all these different traffic sort of safety features that make it more comfortable for the pedestrian. And then the last uh, feature was pleasurability. So these are the things that make you know, places more dynamic. So you know, the fact that there's a lot of different uses for you to walk in. Um, it could also mean the attractiveness of the architecture, um, the you know, coloring of the architecture. Is it interesting? Is it visually appealing? So all these, you start to get this more higher order level of need at that top of the hierarchy. So the idea was that based on people's lifestyle circumstances, their cultural um, backgrounds, they may need different levels of needs in order to make the decision to walk. And the other thing that influences it is the kind of walk. So I think we focus a lot in the panel on destination walking, um, but I know Hunter's more focused on the recreational aspect of it. And that's actually really important too because the built environment features 
that facility more recreational walking are a bit different than those that facility destination walking. You have to start thinking about both of those. And that's why I alluded to um, this difference when thinking about how to approach certain low and low density, more suburban type places, because you may not be able to uh, put more destinations within an area that's designated residential, but you can focus on some of the other aspects of the built environment that could facilitate other kinds of walking, like recreational walking, um, which from a public health perspective is all we really want. We just want them to walk at least half an hour a day to go get groceries or to go to the park. I know you've done a lot of work in China too, and I was wondering if your metric system is portable to a place that's so different in terms of cultural and built environments. Um, we actually, so when we first started to think about how we would do this in China, you know, primarily because they are experiencing very similar aspects of, pro- of the, pro- the public health problem of development that's more auto-oriented, we asked ourselves, well, what, you know, obviously the built environment is going to be different there, but also how people see it and perceive it and, you know, rate its importance is going to be different. So, um, we we started with a very broad literature review to try to understand if any work had already been done to identify features that were either facilitators of walking or impediments of walking. And um, not much has been done yet in, in China, but we did pick up some things that were happening there that were not happening here. So there's a lot of issues with blocking sidewalks there because so much of uh, so the older parts of China were built before they really started to uh, have a lot of automobiles. So there's plenty of streets that are quite narrow. There's very little parking available. So what happens is that cars just kind of park anywhere, including the sidewalk. <laughs> so those are those kinds of barriers to walking are things that we had to add to the version of the IMI that we created for, for China. Um, and gosh, the other things like, well, I think we had for our, we have a question that asked about vehicle lanes and how, you know, how wide they are. And we had stopped at like six plus. We were like, well, we can't even like that's nothing for them. So we had to go. We, we were like, well, just enter in the number of vehicle lanes because there were some that were like 20 lanes. It was just ridiculous. I've never seen anything like that. So and we another like just sometimes little small things like we talk to them about graffiti and graffiti is not terribly present there but they have these little stickers that are essentially like graffiti or you know they they kind of have that um sense of littering the environment and they they advertise all sorts of sort of illicit services and i had never known i wouldn't have never noticed that because i don't don't read Chinese. I don't speak Mandarin, unfortunately. But when we were training the students out there, they, you know, they mentioned that. So there were a lot of different things that that kind of came up when we were creating this instrument. Um, and just to back up, we did that literature review. We uh, we also did a Delphi panel of experts working in this space in China itself. And then I did several different uh, site visits. The same way that when we how we originally created the IMI here in the U.S. So we're currently testing it now. We're doing the same process for reliability 
And then we'll be collecting data on walking behavior, driving behavior, and health, including um, weight and, and height, so we could calculate BMI. So we'll be at, get a better sense of what actually uh, seems to be important in these particular neighborhoods that we're studying with respect to the built environment and, and walkability. So we're still, that's still ongoing. Um, so stay tuned for that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, guys, it's starting to feel like spring. So let's all make time to go outside, get lots of walks and enjoy our awesome city before it gets really sweltering out. That's it for this Science in the City podcast. For more, visit scienceinthecity.org and please feel free to email us anytime at scienceinthecity at nyas.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at sciinthecity. That's S-C-I-A-N-D-T-H-E-C-I-T-Y. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.